a partner here at Oasis, and borrowing from the words of Bob Dole back in maybe 88 or 96, it's Sunday and I'm back. So today is going to be part two of what I started last week on the dwelling place of God and the concept of covenant. And last week reminded me of what I think are the three hardest things about preaching. This stupid microphone, the heat of those lamps, and essentially making yourself have an out-of-body experience where you become just a pure vessel of the Lord. So I had a tough week last week, so thank you for bearing with me. I got good feedback despite that. Um, so as promised, what we're going to do this week is graduate from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and we're going to continue to look at the dwelling place of God, and we're going to look at covenant. This week, we're going to do so exclusively with the focus on Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And as I've thought about the words and the message, one word kept coming to my mind over and over and over this week, and that word is revival. And for me, revival is really the intersection of the human heart and the Holy Spirit. And as that happens in one person, it becomes contagious to more and more people and goes big. So for me, I feel personally I'm due in need of revival. I suspect individuals here feel the same way. I suspect Oasis as a whole, as a church, a local church, could use revival, because we can always use it. And I think the church globally is ready for revival. And I look at all the junk in the country and in the world, and I think about the contagious intersection of the Holy Spirit and the heart, and I think the world is ready for revival. So let's pray, and then we can get into it. Father, thank you so much that uh, mere mortals, individuals, have the opportunity to study and share your word. Thank you for the person of God we know as Jesus Christ and for your sending of the Holy Spirit to be the, the guide uh, of all of us who claim Jesus Christ as Savior. I pray this morning that uh, I'll be emptied that the, the, the words that you give me coming out of my study will indeed become contagious, Lord Jesus, and that your Holy Spirit and human hearts will meet increasingly on a big and broad scale. In Jesus' name, amen. So, quick re recap, since it's summertime and here in the land of the frozen chosen, God takes memorial and how God was personally, God the Father, in the events of human beings and humanity. All that before Jesus Christ walked and talked and taught and before the Holy Spirit was sent. Last week I talked very briefly about Abraham and then we went a little bit deeper into the tabernacle and God's covenant with Moses and a little bit into the temple and God's covenant with David. And if you want to put it on the screen, Matt, if you haven't already, of course you have because you're good. I built a lot of last week off what I call my Covenant 101 cheat sheet, which, with respect to God's relationship to human beings, comes down to, in my opinion, this. God saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And the place where we dimensionally limited folks who can't even comprehend of how God really operates because we're limited to our three dimensions, but the place where we encounter God and relate to him in the covenant, and the place where God leads us in that covenant is the dwelling place of God. And we talked about 
the fact that God's commitment to be our God really comes with his understanding as God that we're going to mess it up. We just can't do it on our own. And I think that's why he instituted the law to give us sort of a roadmap and a rule book. And for sure, that's why he instituted the sacrificial system of Judaism so we could have the, the path to atonement, the path to that relationship with him. And as the Old Testament goes from the Davidic covenant right to the end, and in fact, as we open the pages of the New Testament, that's where we live. Uh, we need to remember that we're all spiritual descendants of Abraham and that we were living under the Davidic covenant and subject to that law and that sacrificial system. But then as we get into the New Testament very quickly, along comes Jesus Christ. Another direct descendant of, of David, just as Solomon was, the leader of the Jews at the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And even as we were in rebellion, failing to fulfill the law, and dependent on the ugly, ugly business of that sacrificial system centered on the temple, so were we today. And that's why Scripture tells us in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. So Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, fully perfect, fully God, and yet fully human, came onto the scene, and he walked, and he talked, and he taught very briefly, and then he came to the cross. And there on the cross, he hung and he died, and he took on the sin and the shame of the world forevermore, right? And as he died, he uttered what I think many of you know are my very favorite words or word in the whole of Scripture. In John 19.30, it says as he was dying on the cross, he said, to tell us die, or it is finished. And the earth shook, and the veil of the temple was torn, as Matthew records it in 28.51, from bottom to top, physically impossible. And we can only assume, and we see this in some of the movies, that the temple fell. And Jesus was placed in the tomb, only to be revealed as gone, as resurrected on the third day, and then to appear to his disciples in the immediate days to follow. And this is the gospel, folks. Jesus is God. Jesus, in dying on the cross, meant when he gasped that word to Telestai that the work of atonement the dependence on the ugliness of the sacrificial system, the law itself was fulfilled. It was completed. And all those Old Testament rules that we still struggle with today were once and for all satisfied in him. Jesus, in rising from the dead and appearing to his disciples and others, proved, yes, indeed, he is God. And yes, indeed, everything, everything prophesied in the Old Testament was fulfilled in him and was fulfilled through him. And then 40 days after the empty tomb, Jesus ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father. So what did the believing Jews do? They did what they always did. 10 days after the ascension, 50 days after the resurrection, they came. They gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks for the festival of the harvest. But that year, a funny thing happened. And it's recorded at least two ways. 
Acts chapter 2 talks about it. And if you know me, you know I think there's a lot in popular culture and media and entertainment that has a lot of theology in it. So Forrest Gump talked about this too. Think about that movie. Gump recorded it this way. With the arrival of the hurricane and Lieutenant Dan on the mast of the shrimp boat waving his fist, he said the same thing Gump did about that, that Acts chapter 2 says. God showed up. Acts chapter 2 puts it this way. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it is with every believer today. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20 explain that to us. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And that price tag is right there. And we could go into that forever, um, but today I've actually got one of my shorter messages. So let's just put it simply. The covenant that was so important last week remains incredibly important today. The covenant is Jesus Christ. In him, you will be God's person, and he will be your God. But what does it mean to be in him? Or more directly, what makes one a Christian? Or as my friend Dave Bush asked the question up here some time back, what must I do to be saved? And for this I go to Romans 10.9, which simply says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I take a lot of comfort in that. It's one of the best parts for me personally of being a pretty staunch Calvinist is I believe, and I'm going to offer this proposition to you, that once saved, always saved. And if I apply that 1 Corinthians verse, if I've accepted being bought with a price, that price, God's economy comes with a very strong no refunds, no exchanges policy. I simply do not believe we can become unsaved no matter what, period. I do have two things to say about that that I do believe, though. First of all, we can backslide, we can go through seasons where we'd never know we're saved, only God knows we're saved. The people around us, the way we think and the way we act, aren't going to measure up. It's probably not okay, but it's okay, because we're fallible humans, that's the way it goes. More importantly, and I think it's a real problem in our culture, I think it's quite possible for one to think they're saved when in fact one is not saved. So with that, I want to turn to the focus, and I want to go back to what Romans 10.9 says about believing in the heart. And I want to recall the words of one of my seminary professors who said, Ed, the heart of the matter is, it's a matter of the heart. And this is where we get ourselves into trouble, I think, as smart, Western, modern Christian folks. We tend to associate the heart with just emotion and maybe some generic concept, perhaps, of belief. But remember what I said earlier, and remember where I focused last week if you were here. Christians are Abraham's spiritual descendants. Christians have their spiritual roots in Judaism. And in fact, the authors, the initial hearers, and probably the initial readers of the New Testament were primarily Jews, at least until the missions to the Gentiles. 
And even then, the broader first century concept of heart, I think, uh, in other cultures, was probably pretty close to that old Hebrew concept or belief or understanding of heart. And in turn, I really believe that Hebrew conception of heart is a lot closer to what God himself would intend for all people to understand about heart. So for us as the New Testament Christians, I think it may come down to Jesus' own words as he offered the great commandment in Matthew 22:37 through 40. And I'd like us to read that together. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. And here's the thing. If the law and the prophets hang on those words, and Jesus is the tetelestai of the law and the prophets, all of our Christianity, I believe, hangs on those two words. And love, love is a matter of the heart. So let's look at some of that Old Testament or Hebrew concept of heart. Let's dig into what, what does it really mean, not in our current modern sense, but, but what did the, the writers mean? What does God think when he thinks heart? And for that, I want to go to this book. It's called The Heart of a Warrior. Uh, it's by a guy named Michael Thompson. It's a solid book. Several of us here in the church have read it over the last few months. And he has an appendix to this book that I bet those of us that read it may not have even looked at. And the appendix goes to New Unger's Bible Dictionary, which is by Moody's, the publisher, which means it's a fantastically evangelical and biblically solid publisher and book. Therefore, Unger's is good. Therefore, this is good. So I want to read directly from that appendix. Uh, quite a bit, actually. But it, it's, it's so important. If it all comes down to heart, what does heart really mean? Forget about what you think heart means and listen to this from New Unger's. The heart is one, the center of the bodily life. The reservoir of the entire life power becomes the strengthening of the whole man. The heart is two, the center of the rational spiritual nature of man. Thus, when a man determines upon anything, it is called to presume in his heart to do so. When he is strongly determined, he stands firm in his heart. What is done gladly, willingly, and of set purpose is done obedient from the heart. The heart is the seat of love and of hatred. Again, the heart is the center of thought and conception. The heart knows, it understands, and it reflects. The heart is also the center of feelings and affections of joy, of pain, of all degrees of ill will, of dissatisfaction from anxiety to despair, of all degrees of fear from reverential trembling to blank terror. Three, the heart is the center of the moral life so that all moral conditions from the highest love of God even down to the self-defying pride, darkening and hardening are concentrated in the heart as the innermost circle of humanity. The heart is the laboratory and origin of all that is good and evil in thoughts, in words, and in deeds. The heart is the rendezvous of evil lusts and passions a good or evil treasure. The heart is the place where God's natural law is written in us, as well as the law of grace, the seat of conscience. 
The heart is the field for the seed of the divine word. The heart is the dwelling place of Christ in us, of the Holy Spirit, of God's peace. The heart is the receptacle of the love of God, the closet of secret communion with God. It is the center of the entire man, the very hearth of life's impulse. And that's good stuff. That's good stuff. And in fact, that's where I'm going to stop because it's that important. I want to turn it over to you guys. I'm going to ask a few questions. I'm going to encourage you to meditate, to think, to contemplate, to pray right where you are. Come on up and kneel by the cross. Come on up and pray with the folks that will be up here, our prayer warriors, whatever you need to do. And take as much time as you need it. The lights are going to go down. We're going to have a key verse on the screen. We're going to have some contemplative music. Here's the questions. How's your heart? What do the ways that you think about other people, any or all other people, because we're all made in the image of God, indicate about the condition of your heart? Important. What do the ways you think about yourself say about the condition of your heart? With that, I invite each of you here now to know that you are well-beloved, fully adopted sons and daughters of the King. Or to reaffirm that. Or if you've never established that relationship and claimed that sonship or daughtership, do it now. And in that, you have the opportunity to live what I call a Hebrews 4, 9 through 10 life. And that's going to be on the screen and stay on the screen. There remains then a Sabbath rest. Hallelujah, by the way. For the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God rested from his. So to Tetelestai, it is finished. Rest. Not just on the capital S Sabbath of Sunday, but I and a lot of commentators believe this Hebrews 9 Sabbath rest is the long haul and eternal rest. Rest in God. Amen. You can go ahead and cue it up. And stay as long as you need to, as long as you can, as long as you want. Listen to the music, think on the verse, pray however you need to pray. And if our prayer warriors want to come up, that's fine too.